Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in the mountains of Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by a thick, lush green, starting to turn fall colors, forest, and beautiful waterfalls and lots of little critters as they call them around here. This episode is part three in a short series called Music and Life Toward a Holistic Perspective, a note on the theoretical foundations of sound therapy. So this is the third part of this series where I'm discussing essentially the content of a paper I just wrote and put on my website, phisonics.com, and that paper is called Music and Life. So we've been working our way through the content of this paper, and for those who might not have heard part one and two, so that this will function as a standalone episode and not necessarily require having heard the first two episodes Although, in order to get the full picture of it, that's definitely recommended. Nevertheless, I want to make sure that if you just hear this episode, you'll still have something interesting and presumably worth thinking about. So, the abstract of the paper, I'll read it again, it's really short. This informal note addresses some fundamental relationships between that which we call music and that which we call life. Certain similarities are addressed, as are the inherent limitations in the definition of these terms. As music coherently bridges the objective and subjective domains of human experience, it is suggested that we investigate music as a primary resource toward better understanding life itself. So in the first two episodes in this series, we uh, dug into the topic from the beginning, questioning, asking about, you know, what is life? Uh, Talked about the rainbow, which is a very real uh, phenomenon that we witness that has an interesting feature that when you try to find it, it runs away from you. So by looking at the rainbow, which we all acknowledge as a real thing, that it actually exists in some sense, uh, by looking at that example, we can get a sense of how certain things can escape the grasp of science when we approach them, or the, the certain things can escape the grasp of our understanding when we approach them with the wrong questions. For example, if we If we ask, where is a rainbow, as we understand a rainbow, we realize that it's not really a good question. And even when we ask, what is a rainbow, uh, there's some tricky issues there where the type of answer we can get isn't the type of answer we're really looking for. And that's something that we will run into as we try to understand many things, not just a rainbow. Talked about observer independence 
and how that essentially set apart science and magic. Science being that magic which learned to ignore the observer or ignore the subjective domains of human experience and therefore or thereby become a more potent method of uh, making reliable predictions. And then about the sort of crowning accomplishments of modern science, in a sense, being the uh, theories of relativity and quantum mechanics, and how these two very scientific fields themselves clearly proved and quite dramatically demonstrate that the observer is inextricably linked to all of our scientific endeavors. So this field of science, this field of human endeavor and exploration called science ignores the observer or ignores the subjective and then science itself produces these great far-reaching theories that prove that we cannot ignore the observer. Talked about life, uh, what is life and how life itself sort of escapes our definition and very much like the rainbow escapes our definition. Also talked about science getting demoted to engineering, that if you assume that science is really just a means for getting useful tools and, and useful procedures and better predictions, then we're essentially demoting it to engineering. If we try to do that, we end up eliminating the very foundations of science, which science is the greatest discoveries in science are rooted in a human effort to actually understand the universe better. So if we take away the idea of understanding the universe from science, then we're left without its fundamental power and, and we make it powerless. So that's not a good way to proceed. Then we discussed the return of the observer bringing the observer back into our scientific endeavors and introduced a suggestion that we look toward music. That music has this special feature that in a sense, music lives on the surface of boundary between that domain that we call objective, which is the domain that science prospers in, and that domain we call the subjective, that domain that's essentially in the blind spot of science. So right there on the boundary between the objective and the subjective lives this thing we call music. Music has a very objective side. We know we can measure the frequencies and rhythm patterns and whatnot. We can go on and on with objective considerations of music, including instrument design and reproducing music or how the ear works and how that turns into neural uh, phenomena, brain pulses and whatnot. So there's a very objective side of music. And then there's a subjective side of music. Obviously, we listen to music, we feel music, we have this internal subjective domain that is very, very much a part of what we call music. 
So music is includes the subjective and objective domains. And one way of looking at it is that music is, in a sense, this thing, this field of human endeavor and exploration that lives on the boundary between the objective and subjective. Therefore, it's suggested that as we attempt to expand science to accommodate the observer fundamentally, accommodate that part of the universe that we call subjective, then it makes a lot of sense to look for guidance in that realm that we call music, as music lives in both subjective and objective domains. And that's where we got so far. So now we're, we're, that's a background for those who didn't hear the first two episodes or a review for those who did. And now we will continue into the next section, which is called The Essence of Music. It is a lovely coincidence that as I get to this section of the presentation, the essence of music, the katydids and crickets and tree frogs have kicked up their beautiful chorus. I hope you can hear that. What is music? What is this great power that bridges all domains of human experience? Perhaps we cannot answer this question in the ways to which we have grown accustomed. To answer any such question, we generally seek some general principles or well-defined terms with well-defined relationships. However, such a method is not adequate in our current considerations. We are here considering music, a field that bridges the subjective and objective domains. Thus, we cannot adequately proceed by stringently objective methods alone. Much like in the case of quantum mechanics, where a novel perspective is required in order to conceive that a thing can be both a wave and a particle, or both here and there, or both existing and not existing. We are likewise in a position where transcendence is required. We must genuinely transcend our strictly objective frameworks in order to adequately consider that which is both objective and subjective. As music bridges the objective and subjective domains of human experience, we may rightly suspect that there are some essential features of music that operate in both domains. What are the essential features of music? Although music has never been and perhaps may never be comprehensively defined, nevertheless there are certain features of music that are universal, in that these features are common to all that we deem to be music. Three fundamental features of music can be usefully identified, rhythm, melody, and harmony. Of course, many more features of music have been identified and explored fruitfully, but for our current considerations, we shall address only these three. 
What are rhythm, melody, and harmony? We can of course describe objective features of these three, and such has been done quite thoroughly in countless music theory books. In our considerations, however, we are not only interested in objective features, we are looking to bridge the objective and subjective domains of experience, or rather, we are seeking some central features of music that may serve as such a bridge. So let us ask, how do we subjectively experience rhythm, melody, and harmony? Is it not the case that our every internal state, our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations, are not all of our inner subjective experiences both mapped and morphed by music itself? Do we not experience rhythm as the movement of our body and breath? Do we not feel vibrations as the very sense of our body's palpable presence? Do we not feel melodies and harmonies as movements of emotions and thoughts through time and memory? In other words, in our experience of music, do we not simply sense our very self, that totality of internal experience that we call I, the observer? Is not our experience of music precisely our experience of our self? The experience of our awareness following the music, following the music ever deeper into aspects of our self which were being previously ignored? The above questions can only be answered by direct experience. Let yourself listen closely to some music and pay very close attention to what is happening. You will find that indeed it is true. Our experience of music is precisely an experience of those aspects of ourself which the music illuminates. This is a subtle matter and surely takes some devotion to discover, but the experience is right there with you now at this very moment, if you only pay attention. So what does all of that mean? Essentially, you know, we were looking at what is music, and that's very hard to define. A lot of incredibly smart and devoted and very uh, well-educated people for, you know, even perhaps thousands of years have addressed that question, and yet there's still no simple definition. So that demonstrates to us that we're looking at something that maybe we're looking at some, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe the question itself, what is music? Is there some sort of flaw in the question? I mean, how can you have geniuses for thousands of years address a very simple question and not come out of it with a really clear answer? Perhaps some of the listeners are thinking to themselves, perhaps you're thinking, uh, we know what is music. What, what are you talking about? Can't define music. Of course we can. Look it up. It's in the dictionary. And that 
is a sensible viewpoint for anyone who hasn't devoted a significant amount of consideration to the question. It turns out that it's one of those questions, what is music? It's a question that at first seems really simple and really obvious, that it's easy to answer. It's only when you really get in deep to into the realm uh, that the question occupies that the fact that it's not really such a simple question to answer becomes ever more apparent. It's not unique in that there are many such questions that essentially the more you learn about the topic that the question addresses, the more you find out that you can't answer it so easily. And what is music is one of those questions. Some other examples might be, for example, what is life, which is particularly relevant to these explorations. Another question might be, what is nature? Or another question might be, what is time? Or what is space? Or what is information? So as you can see, hopefully, there's a lot of questions like that where it's not so straightforward to answer it as it might at first seem. The more you learn about time, the more difficult it becomes to answer the question, what is time? The more you learn about any of these things, the more difficult it is to answer the question. And when a question is so incredibly challenging to answer that even for thousands of years, genius upon genius has not produced this essentially this giant team of geniuses working for thousands of years devotedly haven't been able to uh, answer the question well or even at all and it's a simple question that suggests something it suggests that maybe it is not a good question not all questions are good questions not all questions have a reasonable answer so a, a really fun example of this is where does your lap go when you stand up so when you're sitting down you have a lap right somebody can point to it you know a kid can point to it where's mama's lap they can point to it they could even demonstrate hey i'll show you where mama's lap is by sitting on it look i'm sitting on mama's lap and then they can go over and see you know sit on a chair and say see i'm sitting on a chair and then sit on the floor sitting on the floors and then point there's the chair there's the floor there's mama's lap then mama stands up and then you might ask there's well first of all when mama stands up there's no more lap so 
then a really pretty obvious and very simple question is, where did her lap go? So as simple as that question is, and as straightforward as it seems, nobody can answer it. Is it really for such a mysterious reason that it cannot be answered? Is it really so mysterious? Where did the lap go? Did it disappear into, you know, some sort of magical land or whatever? Is it really that mysterious? Or is it simply that we are asking a question that is not a good question? Perhaps we consider the lap to be something that it isn't really. We have this idea of what a thing is. The chair is a thing. We can point to it, name it, you know, move it to our other house by putting it in our van and driving it there. We can drop it off a building, you know, we can accidentally kick it when we're walking in the dark. The chair is this thing. The floor is a thing, or so they appear to be. And then the lap, likewise, seems to be a thing of the same nature. And, but the thing, the, the, the trick is the chair and the floor are relatively permanent things in that they exist in this time scale that's really long compared to our lives. For example, the chair is pretty likely, if it's a good chair, to outlive us. It might have been around before we were born, made out of, you know, carved out of wood or whatnot, and then it might be around long after we're gone. It might even be a stone chair. It could be a bench. It could last for thousands upon thousands of years. Very long-lived chair it may be indeed. And likewise, the floor. I mean, the floor could be a stone floor. It could even be the floor of a cave. A very, very long-lived floor. So relative to our human lifespan, and all of you listeners are presumably human, at least the ones who understand the words that I'm speaking are likely human. So relative to our life, the floor and the chair might have really long spans of time from when they sort of appear in the universe and when they sort of disappear. And the lap is very, very different from the chair and the floor in that particular way. The very striking difference between the lap and the floor and the chair are that the lifespan or the time frame in which that lap exists is short relative to our lives. And so then we get confused. We treat the lap in our minds, we categorize it in a category with the chair and the floor as a thing, but it doesn't work like a thing. It's more like an action.
like a dance move. So for example, when a runner is running past us, we're at the race and watching people run around in circles, the runner takes a step. And that step, we don't tend to ask ourselves questions like, where did the step go? So you remember the the first step that the runner took when they started running the race? We can all talk about it. Yeah, we saw that step. We might even have it on video or have a picture of that step, the first step that they took. And it was a while back, you know, it was at the beginning of the race. It could have even been yesterday or last year. We can all talk about the step that the runner took. And, you know, we can agree generally upon what we're talking about. And we talk about it as if it's a thing, sort of roughly. But we know very well, it's very clear to all of us, that it the step that that runner took is not a thing in the way that we picture the floor or a chair. We don't expect it to have this existence where it makes sense to ask the question, where did it go? Where did the step go? We simply don't ask that question because it doesn't make sense. And the lap is a very similar thing. A lap is this action, this verb, this this activity that occurs temporarily when someone sits in such a position that they form a you know a semi-horizontal platform with their upper legs. That's what a lap is. It's kind of like a step. It's something that happens, you know, temporarily. And interestingly, the chair and the floor are actually just like that. And we maintain among most of humanity a confusion where we allow ourselves to pretend that the chair and the floor and every other thing that we call a thing, we all sort of unspokenly agree that we're going to pretend that these things exist forever and we're going to think of them that way. But really, it's not like that. And that's an illusion that we all agree upon and you know proceed because it can be very useful to pretend that we all agree upon it but it's actually an illusion and we are capable humans are we have these uh, extraordinary uh, operational systems our minds our brains and however else it works this system of reasoning whatever aspects of us uh, causes us to be able to reason in such a fashion we are capable of all of us and it's not a matter of intelligence every human has this capacity to be able to conceive the fact that the chair and the floor are in fact just like the lap or the step. They are these temporary activities of the universe. There were trees growing from seeds and 
Then one of them fell when lightning struck, and then a man hiking through the woods with a saw sawed the fallen tree, and then he got his mules and he pulled those big heavy logs across the field until he reached his workshop. And there with his tools, he fashioned and carved off the excess wood to at last leave this thing called the chair. And then that chair travels around the world and goes many places and many people sit on it. And then the wood gets weaker and cracks and crumbles and falls apart and gets tossed in the fire and then erupts into flames and turns into heat that heats the children as they stand by the cozy fire at Christmas. Turns into warmth, turns into cooking soup. So this chair, it is a view of this infinite path of becoming it is not a thing there isn't a thing and just likewise is the floor and any other so-called thing that any of us can think of we are allowed and we are all capable of removing ourselves from the illusion the delusion that's created by our ways of thinking, we are capable of conceiving the reality of it, that things are not things. It's all alive. And music is like that. We ask, what is music? When we think of music, we naturally consider it to be some way or something that we can, for which we could answer the question, what is music? But just like the question, where does your lap go when you stand up? Asking what is music seems to be a problematic question. Perhaps we aren't looking at music in a way that matches reality. Let us see if perhaps we can. Although we may not be able to define music in the way that we seek to or have sought to, we can nevertheless identify some central features of music. Three central features of music that have been explored traditionally and fruitfully are rhythm, melody, and harmony. Rhythm, melody, and harmony. Of course, understanding these does not define music, but the more we understand these, the better we understand music. So rhythm, melody, and harmony. In a similar fashion to how we are challenged to try to define music, we are likewise challenged, and in just the same way, if we try to define rhythm, 
melody and harmony. But what we can do is explore them. So that's really something that in this domain, the, this whole podcast series is about sound healing. This is something that will be really useful to us as we proceed exploring this field of sound healing is a shift from the tendency to want to define things to rather explore things. So instead of trying to define music, we explore music. And in the exploration, we come to understand music because music, knowledge of what music is, is initiatory knowledge. It's knowledge that's gotten through direct experience. Just like the taste of the strawberry, the only way you can really know what a strawberry tastes like is quite simple. You eat a strawberry and taste it. And the more often you do that, and the more attentive you are to it, the more familiar you get with the taste of a strawberry. Likewise with music, the more we experience music and the more attentive we are to that experience and to all its subtleties and details, that much do we come to understand what music is. And likewise it is with rhythm, melody, and harmony. So rhythm, melody, and harmony I'm not going to attempt to describe those things or even talk about the definitions that others give for them because I'm going to assume that the listeners are already somewhat familiar with rhythm, melody, and harmony. So, but I will give an example. So, rhythm. Here's a melody example. I think I uh, missed a couple of the notes, but whatever, it's all right. And harmony, ooh, that's a tricky one because I would have to maybe go, ah, and ah, and ah, at the same time. So I will use some computer trickery really quickly and uh, go ahead and put those three on top of each other so you can hear that. Here we go. Ah. That was pretty nice. I was uh, reasonably on key. (laughs) So we just had an example, uh, hopefully entertaining somewhat, of rhythm melody and harmony so there's an interesting there's a there's a lot of interesting things about 
rhythm, melody, and harmony. In, in fact, uh, I would go so far as to say that it's about as interesting as it gets because you can follow these three things, rhythm, melody, and harmony. You could, you could devote your life to studying and exploring and learning about these three things and those explorations could take you into every single domain of consideration. So for example, let's suppose you decide, I am going to devote my life to studying rhythm, melody, and harmony. And I want to learn about brain science, neuroscience, learn about how the brain works. Suppose you, you know, you're devoted to rhythm, melody, and harmony, but you also don't want to miss out on learning about the brain. It just so happens that your knowledge of rhythm, melody, and harmony will illuminate the most central features of brain science. Or let's say, for example, you were you know, devoted to rhythm, melody, and harmony, and you want to learn about ecology. So you take your knowledge of rhythm, melody, and harmony and your devotion to those three things. You go to school for ecology or you get a bunch of textbooks and take up a, you know, a very devoted study, maybe watch online lectures or however you want to learn about it. It just so happens, coincidentally, that your knowledge of rhythm, melody, and harmony will illuminate the central knowledge core of ecology. Uh, let's say you want to learn about information theory and computer science and communications and information technologies and computers and you know satellite transmissions and that kind of stuff or radar sonar you know things like that it just so happens that your knowledge of rhythm melody and harmony essentially are the very fundamental central features of uh, that field of information communication theories what's another example let's say you want to learn about the art of love. Ooh. <laughs> Just so happens, rhythm and melody and harmony will teach you everything you need to know about love, whether it's love on, you know, a physical level that made what I said somewhat funny, or love in relationships. Look deeply into relationships and come at it from the perspective of rhythm, melody, and harmony, and just so happens that you are right there at the central core. And here's one of my favorite examples. Suppose you want to learn about physics. The, you want to learn about quantum mechanics or about even relativity or any of the various fields of concern and study that we call physics. It just so happens that rhythm, melody, and harmony are an excellent foundation for understanding those. Suppose you want to learn about architecture or engineering 
or even biology or even particle physics or atomic theory or chemistry. If you're coming from rhythm, melody, and harmony, if you're starting from there, it just so happens that in every field of human consideration, these three topics take you to the central core. And they just happen to compose, good uh, pun unintended, that field of human experience and activity that we call music. And so that is an extraordinary, very striking thing to notice. It really supports the perspective that we are putting forth here that if we want to expand or move forward with understanding the universe beyond this boundary that science has come to where we have to face the fact that science doesn't sufficiently or even at all illuminate that field of human experience called the subjective. This really supports that feeling or that approach or that direction of consideration that we might want to look to music because as we look at the central features of music, rhythm, melody, and harmony, and then approach other topics of human consideration with those as our sort of background or core, the direction we're coming from, turns out that we find ourselves at the roots of these fields of consideration. So basically, this is just all fitting together into a beautiful puzzle or a beautiful picture. And that picture is of a hand that is pointing at music. And let us follow that pointer. Let us notice that this picture is pointing directly to music and saying, hey, you have this question, you have this thing you're trying to figure out. You found yourself at what seems to be a roadblock, but guess what? Here is exactly what you're looking for. Music bridges the subjective and objective domains of human experience. And music, the fundamental features of music, rhythm, melody, and harmony, take us to the core of most every field of consideration. So let's follow this pointer. Let's pay attention to what is being pointed out here and let us turn our attention toward music and see what inspiration, what direction we will find therein. This podcast is brought to you by Phi Sonics Academy, online, virtual, face-to-face, live courses with yours truly, Thomas or Anderson, studying the foundations of sound healing or sound therapy, your very own customized education 
to build a solid foundation for your sound therapy or music practice. You can learn all about the physics of sound, how it manifests in our actual musical instruments and sounds, and then how that relates directly to your personal practice. It is always really fun. The classes are fantastic by all accounts. I hope to see you soon. You can book your own private course on the website, phisonics.com, P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S dot com, and just click on Academy. I'll see you soon. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this edition and come back for part four of Music and Life. Thank you for joining me this time on The Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm Thomas Orr Anderson, your host. I look forward to hearing from you. I look even more forward to meeting you. And until next time, be blessed and be well. Thank you.